Welcome to the Upreneur Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Straub. The Upreneur Podcast is in partnership with Score Broward, which is a nonprofit that's been helping entrepreneurs and small business owners start, develop, and grow their businesses for more than 52 years. The Upreneur Podcast and Score, we interview influential entrepreneurs and executives here in Florida about their success. We'll gain insight into their lives, the struggles they've faced, how they've overcame, and advice they can give to people that are starting a business or getting into their industry. So if you own a business in Florida or you're thinking about starting one, this podcast is for you. Welcome for our next episode of Upreneur with Jason Ditkovsky from McNeil Signs and uh, Channel Letter USA, a serial entrepreneur. We'll kind of talk about him looking at the franchise world along with being able to do some deals recently and how to build a scale and scope in these businesses. Jason, welcome. Happy to have you here, man. Uh, thanks so much. I thought we weren't calling each other on serial entrepreneurs, though. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't we know where just that came from. <laughs> you, got, you got me in it in the beginning of the, pro, the, uh, beginning of the show. I, I so. literally just said it, but really good job pronouncing my last name. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we actually just talked about not, uh, we didn't like the term serial entrepreneurs, and I just dropped it right away. So well as a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> so to talk a, a little bit about, we, you know, we had some conversations in the pre-show and we talked about you when you moved down here to Florida from Canada starting to just try to decide on what kind of business you went through and we have a lot of listeners sitting here going you know what I want to start my own business I have an idea I'm looking at franchises I've looked at business brokers to buy businesses and you've seemed to run the gamut in your career of all those above but talk about the move from up north to Florida and how you started trying to decide on what type of business you were going to go through. What was the process going through in your head and how you actually started it? Okay. Well, in my previous life, I was actually way cooler. I was living in California. I went to school in San Diego, moved up to LA, wanted to work in the entertainment industry, landed a job at Sony Pictures on the actual Sony studio lot awesome. in Culver City. Yeah, yeah, it was real cool. We did analytical marketing for new releases. So what's analytical marketing? So basically we would determine based on certain quantitative uh, metrics, yeah. how many theaters a movie would open in, in different markets. So for example, the way you would promote a film and the number of theaters it would be available in yeah. would be one in Miami yeah. and very different in a place like Salt Lake City, Utah, for example. Yeah. So we did all that type of stuff and then worked with the marketing departments accordingly to try to make sure that uh, we didn't overspend or underspend on marketing initiatives. Gotcha. So you had a career job in Cali and then... So I thought. Yeah. And then I ran into the wall of walls. So I, at the time, was only a Canadian citizen and was working and living the life in Southern California. I thought I was the living uh, version of Ari Gold or was going to be from Entourage. (laughs) And it all came crashing down. In 2008, when the recession hit, I went to renew my work visa and uh, Uncle Sam basically said, no bueno, man, Uh, you got an American can do this job and you got to find someone, something else to do or you have 30 days to get back home to Canada. And it was November 1st. So the winter was coming and um, I'm not a fan of the cold weather. So that was kind of tough and I had to move back north and I thought I was going to stay up there in Toronto for the rest of my life. Everything was coming together. I was working for the family. Did some side projects as well. And 2012, my stepdad said, listen, I'm basically out of the game. Time for you to figure out what you're going to do. You want to get a job? You want to find, look for a business? I'm willing to help to some degree, but yeah. 
you got to figure it out. So my first thing was, was I looked around and I said, I'm probably never going to have this type of flexibility ever again. At least I was in my early 30s. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping that I wouldn't. Yeah. And I said, you know what? Let's do it. And my grandparents, both sides had places in South Florida. My parents have our snowbirds yeah. in Boca. So uh, yeah. <laughs> the quintessential uh, yeah, snowbird Jewish area, however yeah. you want to say it. And so I said, well, so I have a free place to stay. This is a good start. And I love the warm weather. So why not? And I came down here and I didn't want to be at the mercy of anyone ever again. So we looked into the investment visa and the E2. And I was actually very surprised of really how little that investment had to be. And so I started working with business brokers and I probably met with two or three. We spoke to two or three a day and met with a bunch. And a lot of it was crap or things that I never really saw myself doing. Yeah. And I was approached by a gentleman named Gary Langell, who today is, works at Transworld, but at the time was a sales rep for United Franchise yeah. Group, in, based out of West Palm Beach. And he said, what do you know about science? And I said, I don't know anything about science. I know that... So what year is this? When was this? 2012 end or beginning of 2013. Gotcha. And he's, So you just came down here just knowing you wanted to be in business for yourself, start your own business, but weren't sure where to do. And then you just started asking around, you start Googling, whatever. I mean, what yeah, exactly. I just started Googling and I said, wrote literally businesses for sale. Yeah. And much like real estate agents, there's business brokers. Yeah. And they have a lot of listings. And what I learned is that Florida, despite everyone saying how disorganized and crazy it could be when it comes to business brokerages is the most organized out of any state in the union. Interesting. They actually are the only ones who have their own MLS, but for businesses. It's called the BBF. Huh. And there was a lot there. And the guy drove me down, drove me down the street. It was on US-1 near Yamato. And he said, what does every business have in common here? And I said, oh my God, they all have signs. And then yeah. I saw dollar signs. <laughs> and then now I know how much competition there is. But I signed up for my first franchise. I wanted to do a resale as opposed to starting something new. I thought I would have more traction that way yeah. and have an established uh, customer base. Yeah. And so the only one that was available for me at the time was up in Stewart, about yeah. 60 miles north. But I said, you know what? Let's do it. And I went in, we made an offer. We negotiated back and forth for a couple of weeks. I landed it, applied for the visa, had to fly back to Canada, went to the U.S. consulate. I mean, it was cake. Yeah. But I guess when you're... You're starting a business here. They just want the money here, huh? Exactly. They was they yeah. rolled out the red carpet. It was approved basically within five minutes of meeting them after because they had, you have to submit your business plan and all your financials prior. Yeah. Answered all their questions and about a week later, I went back to the consulate with a new a stamp in my passport, which was good for five years, and I moved down here and got rolling. So, what made you decide to do a franchise then, opposed to just you know some mom and pop shop you could buy if you were trying to buy a business? A lot of it had to do, honestly, at the time with the visa, because they basically said that uh, if it's a recognizable brand or something that has been established and has a proven track record, they feel more comfortable that you're able to sustain a living off of that. But also, I want, not knowing a lot about the industry, I thought having that background and that name brand, however strong it is, and yeah. in the sign industry, Signorama and fast signs are easily the two strongest. Yeah. It, it was a good base, and I wasn't uh, treading water on my own. Yeah. How hard is it to go from the entertainment business, which is a, a sexy industry, you know, you're in L.A., you're kind of, you feel like you're at the pulse of the world when you're in L.A. and kind of all the trends going through and that, to, to selling signs. 
<laughs> Especially in Stewart. I mean, oh, right, and, right, right. And I don't think there's video here, but I don't look like the uh, typical Stewart, Florida guy. I mean, the people there are amazing. Yeah. And they're so nice and down to earth. But um, they were necessarily buying what I was selling at the beginning. Yeah. And it was difficult because, you, you know, you go to MBA school, you grow up in certain circles and you think like no one was a sign guy where I grew up. Yeah. But I love business. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what I'm selling or what I'm producing. I like putting together deals and I like growing something. And this was just something else I can grow. And I really saw... As I learned the industry, I really saw how it all comes together and how big it can actually get. Was there any bad advice you got when you were starting to look at businesses to buy or even some franchises that like you would you would give somebody a warning going, hey, this is what people say, but I don't think this is completely accurate or true? Yes. Franchises are great, but but specific ones only. And what I mean by that is there's zillions of franchise concepts. Now, all you have to do is pick up a monthly subscription of Entrepreneur Magazine, for yeah. example, and they have a whole franchise section. And there's all these franchises that have no brand value. So if I'm not purchasing any brand equity, then what's the point of being yeah, franchised? You're just getting an SOP. I mean, yeah. You're just getting the operating procedures to be able to run a business and that's it. Unless they have a phenomenal business model that, yeah. or some incredible proprietary software yeah. that may not be available to you otherwise, I don't see the value in it and... A lot of them don't really stand by what they are selling in terms of support, is yeah. what I've heard. Yeah. Okay. That's good feedback. So then, then you you started one Sinorama. Did you did you pick up other franchises? Did you go off kind of on your own? Tell us kind of the progression from that one franchise you had in Stewart to um, where you're at now. Well, I picked it up and I did well with it. I mean, the base of where I was starting, I didn't really have that. I couldn't have really gone that far down. Yeah. But that's kind of the benefit of picking up a resale is that. Even though, How did you fund it? Was it seller finance? Did you get, did you find its own? Borrowed from the family? No, I borrowed from family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was also about the same, even cheaper than purchasing a brand new one. Oh, okay. Because you don't have all the setup costs. Some of the equipment was older. Yeah. But sometimes, unfortunately, if someone hasn't been successful in it or really didn't put in the time to really want to do it, they just want to get out. Yeah. And I was able to take advantage of that. That's awesome. And same thing happened again. I was a pro- I did well. My first year, United Franchise Group, I actually won Rookie of the Year. Yeah. And I was approached by another one. And this time it was in Hollywood. So yeah. you're such yeah. a different market from Stewart. Like now, I mean, now you got Boca right in between you. Between <laughs> both your places. Yeah. And I was still living in Boca. Yeah. East Boca. So yeah. sorry, I picked up Hollywood for yeah. a great deal from a family who did okay with it, but they just wanted out. It was an older couple and they were just done with it. They didn't want to be in it anymore. And they actually were the landlords. They owned the building. So it was pretty seamless. And it was the toughest year and a half grind in that market. Why? There was a lot of independents in that area who did stuff for cash flow and not necessarily for profit. I noticed that a lot doing business down here is people do a lot of things that are just counting the revenue, but they don't really count their costs. And I mean, if something's not profitable, there's no point in doing it. So right. I would I would quote something where someone would do for like 50% of the price and I, I couldn't compete. Yeah. And I said, I'm not grinding like this. And there was a lot of bait and switch that was yeah. going on. Like, yeah. Jason, I'll do this install for X amount. Then they get there. Oh, I, I said X amount, but I really mean Y amount. And if you don't give it to me, it's not happening at all. And at this point, yeah, you're, you're already, already committed. And doing it and and so, it's true. I, 
I got out yeah. and I did really well on that location. I basically was able to sell it for probably market value of what a new one would cost. And I got it for a fraction of that. Yeah. And another reason I did it is because I was trying to scale my location. That's why I wanted multiple locations. Yeah. And United Franchise Group, they're a great organization, but they have a business model of selling individual units. Right. And can't go into other people's territories. You're not supposed to. Yeah. They make their money from collecting their monthly royalties. Yeah. And if you're leveraging multiple locations to reduce that amount of royalties, they're not thrilled about it, which I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, just so wasn't good. the right fit for what I wanted to accomplish long-term. So, so before you go into kind of changing to that, you said, you know, your first year in the Stewart place, you were rocking and rolling, did really well. Obviously, you were able to extract some value in the second the second franchise you did. What was it that that grind that you did, but it obviously achieved results? Was it, you think you were just good at sales and being able to put deals together? Do you think it was a matter of just out-marketing the competition? What was kind of led to your success so quickly that first year in the franchise? Being humble, but also being confident. So the first thing on day one, I had just done two weeks of sign training and now I'm supposed to run an entire business yeah. on its own. So I inherited two employees and literally the first week I get the designer and production guy gave me his notice yeah. because he had already found a new job because he couldn't stand the previous owner and didn't know that someone new was coming yeah. in. So we started from scratch there. Yeah. Um, and I told everyone when I took over the projects that I was new yep. and I didn't pretend to be the expert, but I also knew that I knew more than them. Yep. And so that went a long way, being humble and being truthful and helping people get through everything was yep. one thing. The other thing that really helped is knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at yep. and knowing who you're going to connect with and knowing who you're not going to connect with. Yep. So I went to a couple of networking events up in Stewart and I quickly found that not everyone is kind of provincial up there a yep. little bit. And great people, but they like to keep it in their community a lot. And yeah. they didn't love the idea that some guy from way up north, or I guess in this case, you know, living in Boca yeah. was going to be their guy. And there was a lot of, well, my daddy's daddy's lived here for years and you're kind of like a good old boy or you're not. Yeah. Yeah. And so I figured for that type of stuff, I was going to have a sales rep who was definitely a good old boy, yeah. but I positioned myself as the opposite of a good old boy. And yeah. as more people started moving in there, I said, if you're, you know, someone came in and you're a good old boy, I'm not your guy. Yeah. But if you feel kind of left out by that, then I am your guy. And it yeah. proved to be really successful up there. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So you, you started with the Sinorama side to talk about the pivot on how you started to go off on your own from there. Well... When I realized that I couldn't scale it and I wasn't going to be able to achieve what I wanted to, I decided to offload them unit by unit. And from there, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I identified a unique, a unique business opportunity. I had been buying channel letters, which is the electrical letters that basically is in every commercial lease, those yeah. storefront letters from a guy in Delray Beach, two guys actually, set of partners. And they'd always talked about selling. I said, wow, these guys have a really good business model because there's not that much competition. Yeah. There were certainly barriers to entry because of the amount of equipment that you needed. Yeah. And there was some competition, but what lacked amongst them and their competition is that if you requested a quote, you didn't get a quote back so quick. If you didn't know every single technical spec about exactly what they were talking about, it kind of put you down a little bit and made you feel less than. And that was kind of... That was kind of what I got from a lot of the other franchisees. Yeah. It's not everyone's people. These people are buying it. Signer are typically print shops and they could do some could do a lot more, but some yeah. don't do much more. Yeah. 
And uh, I said, this is a real opportunity to bring this and make everyone feel comfortable. And really, it's not going to be hard. It's going to return phone calls and be polite. Yeah. And I went in and I got my, you know, I got my butt kicked the first yeah. year. I really did. I mean, there were days where I'd pull like 36 hours straight because I inherited guys who maybe didn't necessarily know what they were doing. I inherited guys who were used to working a certain way and working with, you know, and it was all about not paying certain people the most amount of money versus getting the best people. Yeah. And man, it was rough. The first couple of months into it, I was like, did I actually make the right decision? But I tore it down and built it back up. I, I brought in guys who I knew from the past. Yeah. I invested in equipment to remove the power from a lot of the employees back towards me. Yeah. And brought in people who were going to learn that equipment and learn my ways and... We really grew it. We had a client concentration problem at the beginning when I first inherited it. Yep. And now we're thriving and we're out there. And uh, it's been a huge turnaround the past three years. That's awesome. Thanks. That's awesome. Thank you. What learnings would you share that you kind of got out of that first year, year and a half? Like, would it have been things you would have done differently in evaluating the business ahead of time? Do you think you would have pulled the, you know, the Band-Aid off faster in certain decision making? Whereas you look back and reflect and that acquisition was not ideal. You were, you kind of debated on if it was the right thing or not. Where are the learnings that came from that somebody else can kind of gain from just listening to? If something doesn't seem right, it's probably not right. right. It may be right for the previous people who were there, but it may not be right for you. Yep. The other thing that I made the mistake of, and I made sure I didn't do it this time around with my most recent acquisition, yep. is when you're taking over employees, don't tell them that nothing's going to change. Because that's a lie. Yeah. Ultimately, something's going to change. Something as little as your managerial style yep. is ultimately going to change. And just because they used to do certain things one way doesn't mean it's going to be the same way. It may be, and it doesn't really matter if they're going to like it. You also have to, you have to exert authority right away. Not in a mean way and not in a way where it's telling them this is just how it's going to go. You, you want to get their opinions. You want to see what worked well in the past. You want to see what didn't work well, but... They have to know at the end of the day, you're the decision maker and just going to have to play ball. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's, um, I've taken over a number of operations and I, I always say, and I saw this line from somebody said, you got to paint a picture of hope and optimism while defining reality. And so you got to kind of tell them what they should be excited about and look for, but you, you can't pull punches on what the reality is, what's good and what's bad to be able to do it. And, you know, I've, I've always found myself anywhere from, Two weeks to 90 days, I go on like a listening tour where I just, depending on how big the operation is, I'm taking over. If it's like two people, then it's like a week or two, right? But if it's bigger, it might take me 90 days. Where I try to gain a sense of what it is and try not to make any changes except changes that I think will help the culture right away, right? I remember I took over one operation that they had to pay for coffee. And so I got free coffee and they thought it was the greatest thing in the first week. But it, was, it wasn't a big expense. But what I, what I found is most people after... Three months, six months a year, depending on the size of it. When they pick up the head at the end of those three months or six months, they'll realize it's a completely different company, but they might not have realized it right off the bat when you swing and it kind of gave some changes. And, and that balance between making it clear that you're in charge and they should follow you and there's some direction and you're kind of showing them what the future is going to look like, while also making them feel important and listened to is a very difficult balance to be able to do. And, and clearly you were able to do it effectively with uh, being able to turn around and where you couldn't, you made some changes in the personnel to be able to do it to kind of to fit, to fit <laughs> what you were looking for going through. So you, 
you were able to start to get more on the manufacturing side, not just the retail side. That's kind of what you did. So you started to kind of look up and down the chain and started to kind of pick up the other pieces of the, the supply chains. Well, that's all like. the Channel Letter USA does. Yeah. Let me just go back to what you said about culture. Establishing the culture is everything. Yeah. You can always teach someone how to do something, but you can't teach someone how to think and how to behave and how to act towards others. Yeah. And how to be how to act as part of a team. Yeah. And so having the right culture and having the right people who fit your culture yeah. is the most important thing. And that's what I looked for this time around. How did you go about looking for it this time around? So was it a matter of just kind of observing day to day? Was it asking different questions? How did you go do it as you kind of got into a couple of different acquisitions or a couple of, you started to to realize you got to start looking for culture? What was some of the things you did to do that? As soon as it became official that I was going to be acquiring McNeil signs this time around. Yep. Before I actually took over, I asked Jay McNeil if I was able to go over there and meet everybody. Yep. And I even had him bring back the uh, people who had been laid off due to COVID. Because yep. I wanted to meet everybody because just everyone who fit his ideal of who he wanted to keep may not have necessarily fit mine. Yeah. And so I sat down, I did, I spoke with everyone for at least 20 minutes. Yeah. And I know you can't get everything in 20 minutes, but I tried to get a good feel from it. And I asked a lot of questions to the employees about the different people there. And because some people are get nervous in new situations some people don't react certain ways. And, um, there was one individual, I mean, I, they all work for me now, so yeah. I don't want to circle, but who everyone said, this is the guy. This guy is so important. He's so great. I've never enjoyed working for a manager so much in this period of time. And I mean, it was before I even met him. I yeah. was like, wow. I mean, how often yeah. do you pick up an employee where all your other employees say that about it. Yeah. That's really special. That's awesome. Yeah. Did so. he meet your expectations after that? Is so that far he has been. He's been amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm so different than me. Like complete different managerial style than me. Yeah. And we uh, we work really well together because I'm so hands off with the guy. He's, yeah. He stays in his lane and he just, he brings it and fulfills what he's supposed to do. And that's all you can ask for. Even though you had 20 minutes with each of the people, there's a, we were talking about different books when we first sat down, but um, one of the books a long time ago I read was Blink. And the concept of it, though, at least the concept I gathered from it, I could butcher it, this, but it was with a small snippet of information, you're able to gain a lot. And a lot of times what happened is in that first 20 minutes, you might know in three to five minutes about this person. The rest of the time is just trying to verify your gut feel after that, right? It's like, all right, I feel the culture's good. And now you're just trying 95% of your time is just verifying how you feel is accurate. And usually it's a pretty good feel. You can get that quickly. So I think some people hesitate, you know, the saying is 20 minutes enough to really get to know somebody or, you know, if I just shook hands with, you know, this many people and got, you know, enough talking five minutes, eight minutes, people, can I get a sense of it? Scientifically, people say you can actually gauge a decent amount from those first meetings to do it. And clearly you were able to with this acquisition. Let's talk about the McNeil deal first, because that's a it's an interesting thing because you did it during COVID, which is, it, yes. which is which is abnormal. And so I, I'd like to backtrack a little bit about this transaction because leading up to this, you're doing smaller deals with like the, the franchises and the retail side and that. And then you started to go with, with channel letters a, a little bit more into some of the support. But let, let's talk particularly about the McNeil one. How'd you find a deal like this in COVID? And what made you have the gumption to go do a deal right now with so much uncertainty? So kind of walk me through where your head was with this. Okay, well... I'm a firm believer that you gain your advantages in the littlest places. So forever, I always have the 
Transworld business listings sent to me every week, regardless. And a lot of the times, if I see anything with signs, I fill out the non-disclosure and I hear from my broker and I get the information and most of the time it has no interest to me. Sometimes it piques my interest and we'll arrange a phone call and the majority of the time it turns into nothing beyond that. I did it this time and I saw McNeil signs and I did a double take because they're one of the biggest in South Florida, if not the biggest, one like right up there. And I said, is this the same McNeil signs in Pompano Beach? She goes, yes. Are you serious? And I said, okay, I want to meet him. And she's like, but you know, it's a different type of deal. The building is sold. They're auctioning off their stuff. It's just for the contract. I said, I want to meet him. She goes, but they just want you to bid on the contract. I said, I want to meet Jay McNeil. Yeah. And so she made it happen. And we met, we spoke for probably about an hour and a half. And I said, this is a, a guy who gets it. He cared so much about his employees. I mean, when he was so concerned about it, like literally the thought of him closing up was brought a tear to his eye, not just because of what it meant, the legacy meant to his family, but literally about some of these employees have been with him for 25 years. Wow. And he didn't know what was going to happen to them. And it really bothered him. And I was taken by that. And we kind of walked through. So a lot of the stuff he was doing before, he was doing everything but fabricating. So he was outsourcing the fabrication. And that's all Channel Letter USA did was fabrication. And he did the installations and the service. And basically I did everything but installation and service. So So it was a great fit. It was a great fit. And I knew that, you know, I can't go into the the details of the terms number-wise, but I knew that, you know, it would be like a guppy trying to eat a whale if this for this to work. And I went back and I came up with a concept and floated by him. And the broker was like, maybe this will work and maybe this won't. But I said, listen, it's worth a shot. And there were a few days later, I got a response that he wanted to come see the operation. And it was very serendipitous because a few months prior, Channel Letter USA grown and an amazing space in my business part in Delray had uh, become available. Yeah. And someone had moved out overnight because of COVID. Yeah. It was the perfect space. And I'd upgraded my space and signed the lease. And all of a sudden, I had room to take on this bigger venture. It's awesome. Were you always planning on doing a deal? Because you're getting all these things from Transworld every week. Is it like you knew and you just had some stuff on the side? Or you're just like, you know what? Something comes up. I'm going to figure out how to make it work. It's not only that. I, I just sometimes delay the land because I'm wholesale. Yeah. It's good to know where one of my one of my big customers looking to sell and getting out. It's, so it's more just no one was in the competitive landscape. It wasn't like you were trying to do a deal. It's such an easy piece of information to, to get. Yeah. That's something that takes like maybe one minute a week just yeah. to peruse through something. Yeah. It gives you all the information. It gives you the pulse of your industry. That's yeah, a great idea. So... It fell into it. Was I planning on... I always wanted to build something more in terms of business. Was it going to be another sign business? I don't know. I always looking to grow and seize opportunities. I have a higher risk tolerance than... Uh, definitely, yeah. definitely the, the most of my family. Um, <laughs> a, little, a little stomach hurt. Their stomach hurts sometimes when I talk about it. But when you see your opportunity, I don't want to go back there and say, what if? So I yeah. made... My, I, I gave an offer based on the terms that would have been comfortable for me. Yeah. And I my my opinion was, if it works out, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And if it doesn't, so be it. And, yeah. I'll, and something else will come up eventually. Yeah. yeah. It worked out. That's awesome. Thank well, you. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. I know, I know it's not a, an easy thing to do during uncertain times. The good part is everybody needs signs in the business. You know, when are they going to upgrade and when are they going to do them there? So I, I, I guess it's a, a relatively recession-proof 
business, but it still takes a lot of a lot of gumption to be able to go uh, do a deal like this. So talk about this. Was it, it was the integration of McNeil Signs much different than the uh, the integrations of other businesses? Or it was just same thing on a bigger scale. Well, it was the first time that I was combining two businesses. Yep. So in the past, I would buy something, I would sell something, but I was never bringing one group into another group. The good part is, is there was very little overlap. So instead of having just a fabrication company, we now have our fabricate. My channel at our USA is just the fabricators for both companies. Gotcha. So we build for the other sign companies still, and we build for McNeil as well. Gotcha. So all these other people, we didn't have designers before because... We didn't need to because they would send us the files ready to go. We didn't have installers. We didn't have service. I was the sales team. Yeah. And now we have a full team. So now my old company became, still stands on its own, but also became a department of Channeler USA. But everyone's been really professional. Everyone's integrated really well together for the most part. You know, there's always some that drag their feet a little bit or some who just aren't meant to be, but... That's part of anything. Yeah, that's the any adoption uh, change. It's been really, really, and I brought in a few new faces too, to just to sweeten the pot a little bit. Yeah. And it's been really as seamless as it could possibly get. And a lot of that also has to do with Jay McNeil. Yeah. Um, he still has stayed on in an advisory role. He still yeah. runs his location up in Flagler County. Yeah. And uh, we have a great relationship. He that's doesn't awesome. see it as me versus him. We work in tandem on a lot of things, and he's been quite the mentor the past couple of months and has continued to be so, hopefully. Well, with that size of business, I mean, it, it's nice to be able to have that. You know, if for somebody just to walk away, probably would have been detrimental to the business to be able to the fact that he's willing to be engaged. And it's probably, it might have been part of the deal anyway to, to, to help you kind of go through it, but I think it's a smart move to do it. A couple last questions and kind of pivoting away from, from sure, the, absolutely. The, the deal on the transition. If you had to think of one of your favorite failures that you had in your career, one that, that, you know, in hindsight, you learned a lot from, whether it was in, you know, the businesses we're talking about, whether it was previous careers or whatever it is. But is there a certain favorite failure you had for yourself? Yeah, I had a business venture with a friend. And I guess the best way I could put it is sunk costs. Sometimes, often, people chase good money and good time after bad money and bad time. And Elaborate on that. Well... You know, we, we got into this opportunity together and he was doing something really amazing, really unique. And he wanted someone to try to monetize and take advantage of what he was working on. Yep. And so we did it. And I took a lot of risk and put a lot of time into it. And the guy didn't really come in on his end at the end. Yeah. And on one hand, he never it took a long time for him to just come out and admit that he wasn't necessarily able to pull off as much as he thought he was able to. Yeah. But really on my end is I didn't want to believe it. I wanted to say, no, 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 it's going to come together. It's going to work out. And I wasted a lot of good time, yeah. a lot of negative energy of feeling bad about it. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't chase that again. You make some, sometimes you have to know when to cut something loose. Yeah. And uh, that would be my big failure in that department. And I've learned a lot from that. What well, seemed like a good business concept, you had what you felt was a good partner on that to be able to do it. But as you started to realize that maybe you were willing to put more into it than your partner was, or just kind of wasn't working out where it was, you would have got out earlier than dragging along. I should have. We've uh, salvaged the friendship since. That's so awesome. yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Bill takes you know, and it took both people to put stuff aside. But it's not. I don't know about not getting into business with friends. Some people yeah. say that. I don't know. That's that's necessarily true. But I think when you do do that, you have to be able to be real with each other 
And my bad was not calling him out, maybe in fear of having that friendship lost, whereas I should have just said, hey, man, listen, this isn't working out. And you do you, you do, I'll do me, and yeah. we're all good. And instead, it built up resentment, and I wish I could take that time back. Because even though it was probably about a couple of months of wasted time, maybe eight months of wasted time, yeah. it was a tough eight months, and I wish I didn't feel that yeah, way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. All right, so then uh, on the flip side of that, can you, can you share your most memorable day in your career? Man, there's so many. Yeah, and, and it, it, maybe it was uh, landing a certain deal. Maybe it was a matter of, you know, you saw a pivotal spot in your career. Maybe it was just a... A certain sale or maybe it was just you kind of you, you figured hey this is what I'm what I'm into or maybe it's just a unique story I know you, you know we talked to in the past you did some work as an intern with WWE which yeah. used to be WWF or you were in LA for a while so any part of your career where you're like you know what this was just a an interesting memorable you know inspiring part of your career that you kind of look back at I know this is going to sound corny but there's not one there's not one moment mm-hmm. There was a lot of them, and the many moments kind of reflect. I was able to achieve a lot of things because I just put my head down and went for it. Yeah. You know, it would have been very easy to say, crap, I had to leave California, and now I'm back in Canada, and I'm not going to be able to live somewhere warm or do. Yeah. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to figure out a way. Same thing with landing at WWF. Same yeah. thing with landing at Sony. Yeah. These are things that I wanted, and I chased them. And people said, oh, it's ridiculous. You know how many people don't get that? And I was an average student. Yeah. I worked hard in graduate school, but in undergrad, I definitely uh, skated by. I Same graduated thing. with a 2 six. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, I hit it. So I tell people, you can still do all right. You can. And you just got to put it down and you yeah. got to, and you just got to go for it. And I hate the word grind because yeah. it doesn't mean you're working 18 hour days. It just means that you're being smart and you're going after what you want to go after. And so all these things happened because I just went for it. And yeah. I'm sure a lot of things, did it? Not everything works out in my life. Okay. You know, it's not like yeah. I'm just the golden child. Everything works out far from it. But I also go for a lot of things where people make excuses for themselves that they can't, they can't, or they won't, yep. or they shouldn't. They come up with every reason to kind of self-sabotage. Yeah. And I just go for it, man. Yeah, no. And I think, I think if you, if you look at how success leaves clues, you'll see a lot of successful people say similar things that you said, right? It's like, you know, I've decided I'm going to do it. The hardest decision is deciding you're going to go after it. Then at that part, it's just conspiring the world with you to be able to figure out how to make it happen. Whether it's, you know, when I'm when I'm coaching people about doing interviews or something like that, and I'm like, you know, send a handwritten thank you note afterwards on that part. List, a, then send an email uh, afterwards with the top 10 reasons that employer should hire you. And it's just these little steps that you do that kind of tilt everything into your favor. And most successful people... They make a decision and then they start thinking of these little things that are going to keep tilting things in their favor. And if you do enough of those little things, usually it'll start to put it over to the way that you want it. And if it doesn't, usually someone with an attitude like yourself will figure out some learnings from it to make sure next time it works and, do, and don't really look at it as a negative. You probably don't even remember the times where you really tried to conspire on stuff to work and then it, it didn't really happen because... You went and figured something else out and you found another passion to be able to go through to get it right. Exactly. Like yeah. every step forward, it doesn't necessarily take you to where you ultimately want to end up, yep. but it takes you somewhere that forces you to take another step. So even if you do something and you fall flat on your face, and you completely fail. Well, you got to get up and move somewhere. And that next place that you go to may be ultimately where it ends up working out well for you. Yep. So as long as you keep moving and you don't get frozen 
and you go after what you want and you may end up finding something completely different. But if you don't start moving, yeah. you're just paralyzed in that one spot, nothing's going to come to you. That's it, man. You need the inertia. You need to keep that grind. Let's use the word grind. But that, <laughs> that movement forward, as long as the, the movement's happening, things will start to do it. It's when people get paralyzed or stop is where they don't end up getting what they want. And I think that's a great way to end it, man. Thanks. I appreciate the conversation, dude. This is fun. Yeah, a ton of fun. Thanks so much for having me. It was awesome. Yeah, glad you're here, man. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Jason. And I want to talk a little bit about what his company is actually doing to give back to business owners or people that might have lost their job that are starting a business right now. He's donating up to $100,000 worth of commercial storefront signage for people that are in the process of launching a new business or who need to refresh the current one. Uh, his belief is small businesses is the backbone of the local economy, and the goal of the contest is to help support them in a time of need. If you're interested in being able to get that free signage, email giveaway at mcneilsignsfl.com. That's M-C-N-E-I-L-L-S-I-G-N-S-F-L.com. It'll be in the show notes. Hopefully, you'll be able to check it out. They will help with everything, the five lucky winners with custom design, channel letter manufacturing, permit acquisition, and complete installation. Pretty cool to see people giving back to the community and helping the small business community during this tough time during the pandemic. Jason, it was awesome having you here. Hopefully you guys get as many learnings as I did out of this whole conversation. Thanks. I appreciate you listening to the Upreneur Podcast. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and also share the podcast for people you think might find it interesting. Along with that, if you're an entrepreneur or thinking about becoming a business owner, a great resource to take a look at is our partners at SCORE, where you see retired executives being able to help mentor new budding entrepreneurs. You can find them at SCORE.org, or in particular, we're in a partnership with Broward SCORE if you're in South Florida. Along with that, check us out on our Instagram. It's youpreneur. That's Upreneur with a U, not Y-O-U. That U stands for the University of Entrepreneurs, here to be able to give you and learn from the best and the brightest of entrepreneurs here in Florida. I appreciate you listening. Have a great day.